Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello and welcome once again to The Next Track podcast. This is episode number 57 and we're going to be covering a topic today that requires a little more expertise than Kirk and I are prepared to muster. So we're going to ask Andy about it. Our friend Andy Doe is here. Andy, as usual, it's great to have you. Thanks. It's great to be back on the show. Andy, we haven't had you in a while and... I asked you on the show this week because I've gotten a few questions from listeners about the different types of optical discs. Now, we're all familiar with CDs and DVDs and Blu-rays, but there are others. There are DVD-As and there are Blu-ray audio. There are hybrid discs that combine two formats. There's something called HDCD and there's even MP3 CDs, which have been around for a while and you can still find them occasionally. So I thought we'd go through the various optical disc formats that we use. And you can explain the difference. What are the pros? What are the cons? How popular are they? How common are they? So I guess we should just start with the CD, right? That's the first one that really took off. Oh, yeah. So the CD is the defining audio format of the late 20th century. And it's it's a really extraordinarily successful format if you think about the way it combines reliability with convenience, portability, durability, and sound quality. The CD was designed to a specification that would record pretty much anything that a person could hear. So it it has capacity for as great a dynamic range as a person can hear. It has capacity to record all of the frequencies that are audible to human ears. And this was its kind of intended design brief. So rather than figure out how much music they could fit on a CD, they figured out what a person could hear, and then they designed a format to support that. A lot of people have said that the duration of the music that can go on a CD was influenced by a specific recording of a specific piece of music. Is this true? The story goes that the compact disc had to be long enough to hold Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And in truth, that's not strictly accurate, but it is a good story. So why spoil it? Um, the, the important thing is a CD does have the capacity for a very long recording compared to vinyl. It has a huge capacity. The audio quality is consistent from beginning to end. So it'll sound the same at the beginning of the disc as it does at the end of the disc, unlike vinyl. And you can fit, according to its, its design specifications, 74 minutes, but in truth, up to about 84 minutes without encountering any any serious problems. You can cram about 84 minutes of music onto a CD, which is about two LPs. You know, it's as much music as anybody had seriously thought of putting on an album at the time that the CD was designed, some 33, 34 years ago. So originally it was 74 minutes, and then it seems that this shifted to 80 minutes. What happened? Did they learn a different way to etch the CDs to add more data on them? I'm not 100% sure of what technically happens when they fit more music on, if they go close to the edge or if they put the, the, the tracks closer together. What, what I do know is that when you order CDs from a manufacturing plant, what happens is if the CD's too long, then they'll, they'll say to you, this, this CD's a, a bit long. We can't 100% guarantee you're not going to have trouble with this on, on some players. If it's under... Uh, 82, 84 minutes, then it'll just work on pretty much everything. Uh, Once you're outside of that limit, 
it's sort of beyond the performance envelope of most CD players. And then you'll start to experience problems with it not playing reliably on some players. But I, I think effectively what they do is they, they squeeze everything tighter together, uh, a bit like you can do with a, a vinyl record by turning the volume down and decreasing the pitch of the, the groove so that you can fit more on it. And with a digital recording, rather than being a gradual degradation in quality, what happens there is is the the reliability gets degraded until the error correction that's built into the CD encoding can, can no longer overcome that. And then it, it just stops working and you get skipping or, or it, it doesn't play. So people will have trouble playing extremely long CDs, but you can, it's physically possible to, to push it beyond that limit. Let's just go back to some basics here. How exactly do they get the music from these instruments playing someplace in a studio onto that plastic disc? And then how does it get off that plastic disc into our ears? In a nutshell, what is it about the CD that allows it to contain music? Okay, so this is the point at which I should point out that my, my involvement with CDs is primarily from the business side of things, and I'm not an electrical engineer. But I've made lots of CDs and sold lots of CDs, so I will attempt to explain what, uh, what I think is happening. And uh, I'm sure people will write in if I get this wrong. The sound starts off as vibrations in the air, gets captured by the microphone, turns into effectively vibrations in the electrons moving backwards and forwards in the wires. This could be then recorded in the studio in an analog or digital format. But at some point, instead of being an oscillating electrical signal, this is going to become a series of points. And for a compact disc, you want to sample 44,100 times a second exactly what the value of that oscillating signal is. And that is recorded with uh, 16 bits of, of accuracy. Now, that, that doesn't mean that uh, a value of 1 to 16 is assigned to it. It means that a 16-digit binary number is used to record that. So there's uh, many thousands of available values for each of those 44,100 points per second. It can range from negative 32,768 to positive 32,767. Right. So we got about uh, 64,000-ish possible values. What, what about this 44,100? That's an awfully odd number. Okay, so the idea behind this is that... We can, when we're very young, hear sounds up to about 20 kilohertz. That's 20,000 oscillations per second. And according to the Nyquist theorem, to correctly record and reproduce that, you need a sample rate of more than double whatever that highest frequency is you want to record. And so the sample rate has to be to record up to... 20 kilohertz, you have to have a sample rate of at least 40 kilohertz. Uh, you then want a, a little bit of wiggle room above that. And so when they were looking for a sample rate, they were looking in this region. And at the time that digital recording was first being explored and the compact disc was still in its design stage, there was, there was no mastering equipment for this. And they needed something that they'd be able to record records onto. Um, you couldn't use an ordinary tape recorder because you had to be able to record digital signals at a very, very high density. 
and the, the tape just doesn't move fast enough through them. Really, the only existing equipment that would work for this was, was video recorders where the head spins diagonally across the tape and records a, a series of stripes. And 44,100 times a second was a value that fitted very well into the frame rate of a, of a video recorder. And so 44,100 hertz was the frequency that was settled upon. Okay, so I've got a recording and I want to master it to CD. How does that recorded information get onto the CD? And then how am I able to get it off the CD in order to hear it? Okay, so if you're making a CD on your computer, your computer will use a laser to burn a series of pits into the surface of an optical disc. But if you're mass producing a CD, the process is a little more complicated. It's a bit more involved, but it does allow you to produce greater, greater bulk in a shorter period of time. And the way this works is the digital signal is converted into a, a stream of bits, ones and zeros. These bits are then converted to a, a, a string of pits, kind of uh, whole or not whole, a bit like a bit like Braille. This is etched into a glass master uh, from which a metal stamper is cast. And that metal stamper is used to press into the surface of the CDs in the manufacturing plant. And uh, the, the way it works is that the manufacturing of the, the glass master and the stamper costs about £350. So if you want to press one CD this way, that CD will cost you about... 400 pounds but if you want to make 100 cds this way it'll cost you about 405 pounds and if you want to make a, a million cds this way then the cost of the glass master becomes becomes immaterial a rounding error exactly and uh, when it comes to reading the data off this there's some clever mathematical stuff that goes on with error correction in order to not trip the whole process up if you miss an individual bit of data. But pretty much what happens is a laser shines on the surface of the disk and is either reflected or not reflected, depending on whether there is a, a pit there. And that laser scans over the CD as it spins around, reading the data off it. And that binary data is turned back into numbers, which recreate the series of points, 44 1,100 of them a second, and from that a signal can be reconstructed as an oscillating electrical signal, which is amplified, sent to your headphones or your speakers, which will turn it into vibrations in the air, and it will travel across the room or across a crowded, quiet carriage on the train and into your ears. So this process you've just described is the way all these other optical discs we're going to talk about work. They all work the same way. Pits and grooves, laser reads them. The only difference is that there's more or less data or that the data's in a different format. Am I right? Pretty much, pretty much. So the, the process of slicing time up lengthwise, slicing volume up into a, a number of bits and creating a, a stream of data is called pulse code modulation. And that's pretty much used by all of these formats. In SACD, it works a little bit differently, but we'll come to that. Pulse code modulation, or PCM, may be an abbreviation that people have seen. It's worth noting that when you put a CD into your computer or into an optical drive and you want to rip that CD into your music player, 
there are no actual files on the CD. It's just one long stream of data. And it's the information at the beginning of the CD, the catalog information, that tells the reading device where each track begins and ends, how many tracks there are. This is why when you put a CD into a drive, it takes a few seconds. It has to spin a bit before you can actually start playing it. So when you rip the CD, if you rip it in an uncompressed format, WAVE or AIF, what the computer does is it takes that data and encapsulates it in headers so it can be in discrete files because the computer itself can't read the raw data. It needs to know when the data begins and ends. And obviously, if you're converting it into another format, the drive and the software knows where a track begins and ends, converts it into the other format, saves a file. When the next file comes along, it starts over. That's right. And that information at the beginning of the disk, what's called the, the table of contents that tells it how long each track is, where each one begins and ends, if there should be a pause between them, all of that information is commonly used by metadata services that interface with your jukebox applications to retrieve metadata about the disk. So uh, sometimes there is CD text data stored on the disk, but often what happens if you're retrieving information from, from Gracenote or CDDB, what's happening is that table of contents, that track one starts here and is this long, track two starts here and is this long, that information is what's being uploaded. And it is on the basis of those very exact lengths that these databases are uniquely identifying a CD and returning metadata. And it's not just the minutes and seconds. The data on a CD is divided into frames, each of which is 192 bits of data. So they're really, really tiny. And a four-minute piece of music could have hundreds of thousands of frames. This is why you could actually have two CDs where all the tracks look like they're the same length in minutes and seconds, but your software will be able to identify them because the frames aren't exactly the same. On the other hand, there are some types of CDs where you may find that when you put it into iTunes or whatever, the software comes back and gives you several possibilities. You don't see this a lot, but let's imagine that you've got four tracks on a disc because it's four movements of a symphony. It's not entirely impossible that there are two recordings of a symphony, not even the same symphony, that has the exact same length of the frames. Another place this, this appears is if you have CDs of DJ mixes that are about an hour long. All it takes is for this to be approximately the same number of frames for it to show up as one of 10 possible DJ mixes. That's right. Another place this commonly happens is with radio singles. If you work at a radio station, you get sent a lot of CDs that have often only got one or two tracks on. It's much more likely that there's going to be a lot of other CD singles that have got two four-minute tracks on. Okay, let's move on to the next format. You mentioned it earlier, SACD or Super Audio CD. Okay, so Super Audio CD is the sort of exception to the uh, everything works with PCM audio. So the way that Super Audio CD records the data is like a, a super fast version of PCM where instead of recording a great deal of amplitude steps, along the way. It instead records millions of times a second, 2.6, 2.8 million on or off signals a second. And it's somewhat counterintuitive that this could possibly result in a high quality audio signal being reproduced. But that is exactly what happens. Um, and a very high quality audio signal is reconstructed from 
this data. SACD can store uh, a higher quality of audio, which is not super useful if you believe the Audio Engineering Society's study on this, that the audio quality from the two formats is indistinguishable by human ears. But the Super Audio CD also can record multi-channel formats. And so what's quite common when you're making a Super Audio CD is that you would include a high-resolution stereo mix and a 5.1 or 7.1 surround mix as well. And you can choose which channels you put on it. You can choose which surround formats you can include. You can just do surround. You can just do high-res stereo. I think you can put 9.1 on if you really, really want. And it then uses a kind of lossless compression, a bit like recording lossless audio and then zipping the files up to compress this onto the disc so it'll fit. And the advantage of this is that is that you can fit a huge amount of data onto a Super Audio CD. But from a, a label manager's perspective, there are some complications and frustrations here. Until you've exported all the files and then compressed them, you don't know if it's going to fit on the disk. So you go through the whole mastering process and it, you discover that it's at 140% of the size. And what you can do to make it fit is you can turn the volume down a bit. When you turn the volume down a bit, there is less detail recorded in all of all of this data the total dynamic range is smaller and so there is less data this is reflected in slightly poorer audio quality overall but since you've got more audio quality than anyone can hear that that shouldn't really matter you've got some headroom there you can turn it down a bit uh, and maybe it'll fit but uh what we ended up discovering is that we could not fit the stereo and the surround sound mix on a single layer Super Audio CD. So the extraordinary thing about Super Audio CD is that you can have two layers of SACD on the same disc and the, the player can focus the laser through one layer to read the layer behind it, which is great for two reasons. One, because you can get twice as much on a Super Audio CD, but also because this makes it possible to produce something called a hybrid CD SACD. And on a hybrid CD SACD, which is in many ways the best audio optical disc format, in my very humble opinion, what this lets you do is have the entire CD on the disc, which anyone with a CD player can listen to and they'll hear it and it'll work and it'll be a CD and it'll be CD quality. But if somebody's got a super audio CD player, then their player will be able to see the other layer and it will read this higher quality and potentially surround sound multi-channel format instead. And that user will, that customer will be able to choose which of the two or the, the three formats, CD, SACD stereo or surround that's, that's on the disc. The disadvantage of this hybrid system is that you can only use one of the potentially two SACD layers because the compact disc is on the other. And so if you want to make a really, really long SACD with really high quality stereo sound and multi-channel and it's loud, complicated music and you don't want to turn it down a lot, then you have to use both layers of the SACD for that, which means that you may be 
producing a product that has to have two discs in the box to be playable by everyone, which is more expensive. It's worth noting that the SACD is essentially the same as a DVD. It's about 4.7 gigabytes. In stereo, it can play up to about 256 minutes, but if it was two layers, obviously eight and a half gigabytes, twice that. So 500 minutes, you're getting near eight hours. You couldn't quite get all of Wagner's ring cycle, but you could put it all on two SACDs if it was stereo. Yeah, you can get a lot on an SACD. It would be quite useful for audiobooks if people use them in their cars. How, how popular the, is the SACD format? Well, in many ways, the SACD format is kind of like the, the Betamax of digital audio recording because, because it was invented, it had its technical merits, it was heralded as the next big thing, and it didn't really ever catch on in, in the mainstream. It's commonly used in classical music, very rarely outside of classical music. There's a few classic rock records that are available on SACD, but it's not caught on to a, a very great degree. So there's a similar format, which seemed to be a competitor for a while. It's called DVD-A or DVD audio. What's that? Okay, so DVD-A is responsible for my favorite Wikipedia disambiguation page of all time. Uh, and this, this really also should supplant SACD as, as the Betamax of digital audio because, because this is the format that went head-to-head -head with SACD as the high-resolution replacement for compact disc, and it, it really did not catch on. Uh, as far as I'm aware, nobody is making... DVD. I don't know of anyone who's making DVD. Uh, do you know of anything? Yeah, Mode Records has released a few. Um, Morton Feldman's Second String Quartet, which I believe is between five and six hours, they've released that on DVD audio. And I think they've released a couple of other very long works like that. Okay, so I think one of the advantages of DVD audio is that you have slightly more flexibility over the formats that you put on it. So you can do a low or standard resolution stereo signal that lasts for a very, very long time, which lets you push the capacity of the disc beyond the maximum total playing time of an SACD. And so for extremely long things, it, I can see how that would come in handy. And of course, it'll play on a DVD player. It'll play on any DVD player. Yeah, it plays be. on a standard DVD player. But you do have options to put surround sound on a DVD audio, just as you can on a, an SACD. But obviously, you won't get the surround sound if you don't have a player that can read the surround sound and an amplifier that can convert the surround sound. That's right. Also, both SACD and DVDA include a level of DRM. So it is, or should be, impossible to take a full quality high-res digital signal out of the uh, out of the player although there are some workarounds and if you're enthusiastic about it you you can google those well you would you would digitize it right to put it onto a computer yeah yeah if you wanted if you wanted silly audio quality at the the the, the price that these things are and the hassle that's involved uh, it would normally be easier and more cost-effective simply to purchase the high-res files from an audiophile download store. And uh, if that's what you're into, it may also be worth looking at another of these formats, which is Blu-ray audio. So Blu-ray audio is, in many ways, the, uh, the, the successor to both SACD and, and DVD-A. 
it is the audio equivalent of the Blu-ray format and it should play on any Blu-ray player and it gives you a really really absurd amount of storage space to to play with so for people for whom a DVDA is just doesn't hold enough music Blu-ray audio is uh, is the way you want to go and because because you're kind of spoilt for for choice I made a Blu-ray audio disc and we put the entire album on it in uh, in stereo in 5.1 in 7.1 and we put the high-res WAV files on it so that if anybody wanted to copy them off the Blu-ray they could so there's a format that we were discussing before the show and there's a format that I see quite often on discs that I buy which and this is actually an exception because you said you'd never seen any it's called HDCD or high definition CD what exactly is this format compared to the standard CD format okay so HDCD might uh, perhaps be best considered as the Betamax of optical audio formats um, HDCD is is another attempt to solve the problem of forwards and backwards compatibility whilst improving the quality of the sound on a disc. So DVD-A won't play in a CD player. Um, Blu-ray, of course, won't play in a CD player. Unless you've got a hybrid disc, SACD won't play in a CD player. And before the hybrid CD-SACD was invented, the hunt was on for, for a way to improve the audio quality on a compact disc. And so... HDCD is an attempt to solve this, and, and what it does is a little bit like some of the more sophisticated Dolby encodings. It, with a bit of fiddling around, manages to encode enough information to increase the bit depth, so the total number of... Uh, the total number of levels of volume. Exactly, the, the total number of, of levels of volume, the... the number of amplitudes that can be recorded from from 16 bits to to about 20 bits and it does this with a little bit of little bit of fiddling around with some limiting you turn everything up and then you reconstruct the peaks that would have got chopped off you uh, you encode all of this in such a way that when you play it back on an ordinary cd player it's fine the noise floor is a little bit higher but for the most part you don't hear that except in really really quiet passages but the trade-off with that is that when you play it back on an HDCD-enabled player, the noise floor is even lower, and you don't hear it at all. But then again, if a CD has got normal music on it and it's been mastered properly and recorded well, you're not going to hear any noise anyway. So HDCD didn't catch on super well, but there are some people who really liked it. And I think, Kirk, you've got a few. I have hundreds of HDCDs because for as long as I can remember, all of the Grateful Dead's official recordings are available in HDCD format. And I, and I don't know why, because it's so unpopular that there are hardly any devices that play it. And, and Wikipedia tells me that the Oppo line of players prior to 2017 all feature HDCD decoding. And that suggests that as of 2017, they don't. Now, I have a Cambridge Audio 651BD, which is five or six years old. It's built around an oppo. The, the inner stuff is oppo, and the case and everything is Cambridge Audio. So it does play HDCD. But I remember at one point I was looking to try and find if other players played it, and it's very rare. Okay, we've got one more format, and 
some people will be very familiar with this and others will have never heard of it. It's the MP3 CD. So the MP3 CD is pretty much a CD-ROM with MP3s on it. And unlike the SACD, which uses lossless compression to fit slightly more audio onto a disc at very high quality, what the MP3 CD does is it uses the now fairly obsolete MP3 format to lossily compress, so with a reduction in audio quality, fit far, far more audio onto a disc. And this is this really found its home in the world of audiobooks, which typically are not super sensitive to audio quality, but are extremely long. And uh, they're often not recorded terribly well in the first place. So you, you don't feel like you're missing anything. It's entirely comprehensible. You're just listening to speech. Uh, and if you're driving in a car listening to an audiobook, you don't want to constantly be looking for the next disc. And uh, this is the reason why so many car CD players advertise quite prominently that they, they support MP3 CDs. Uh, so MP3 CDs are a great solution to that specific problem. It now feels a little bit obsolete now that we've all figured out how to connect our iPhones and our iPods and uh, Samsung exploding devices up to our cars. And most new cars don't even have CD players anymore anyway. That's right. Okay, this has been a very detailed examination of optical audio discs. I want to thank you, Andy, for taking the time to explain all of this to us. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, it is next track time. What have you been listening to, Kirk? The weather's been nice here in my section of the UK, and as such, I've been walking outside a fair amount. I tend to vary the music I listen to when I walk. Sometimes it's Grateful Dead, sometimes it's Bob Dylan, and other times it's, you know, 70s rock, and other times it's Electronica or Brian Eno. And what I often do is when I start walking, I just shuffle all my songs, and then I skip ahead until I find the one that, that sounds good. And last week, one of the things that came up was a Miles Davis track, and I thought, huh, Miles Davis for walking, that's really interesting. And the track in question, I'm, I'm not actually sure which track it was or even which album, um, but there's a series of albums that Miles Davis recorded on Prestige Records in the 1950s. And this is before he went over to Columbia. And these are all mono recordings. These are all relatively short tracks. Some of them are more than 10 minutes, but most of them are song length. And, and there's something really nice about this music. It, it's the sort of old-fashioned jazz before Miles Davis reinvented jazz with, you know, kind of blue and then again with Bitches Brew. A lot of it is standards like My Funny Valentine and Surrey with the Fringe on Top, and some of it is Miles Davis's own tunes. If you know Miles Davis and if you know the kind of blue and Bitches Brew and later stuff, but you're not familiar with these prestige recordings, check them out. I'll put a link in the show notes to a box set that you can get with all 14 of these albums. I think it's on eight CDs because the albums are really short. This is Miles Davis when he was in a more traditional form of jazz before he started breaking out into his own more personal type of music. But there's something really extraordinary about the way that he makes this his own and, and makes it unique. So th these are 14 records by Miles Davis on Prestige Records. Doug, what have you been listening to? Okay, so I don't know how to start with this, so I'm just going to say that I've been listening to Slim Gaylord lately. 
Slim Gaylord is probably best known for the 1930s hit Flatfoot Fluji with the Floy Floy. Uh, my father and my brother and I discovered Slim Gaylord about the time I was in high school. My father picked up a live late 40s recording made by Slim and his trio, and, and we went absolutely nuts over it. Uh, it was some of the most wonderfully funny but fantastically played hot jazz, as my French friends might say, say show. These guys sort of had a sound like uh, the early Nat King Cole trio, which is another group you ought to listen to. But Slim invented this sort of nonsense talking and sing-scatting. It's sort of a mixture of hip jazz slang with foreign languages thrown in and, and, and just plain crazy talk. And, and some of the names of his tunes are Yep Rock Harisi, Opera in Vout, Splogum, Duncan Bagel, which is one of my favorites. These are classic Slim Gaylord tunes. He also used to do treatments of popular songs where he'd add a lot of extra lyrics and a lot of nonsense. For instance, in the song, How High the Moon, he sings about how everybody wonders how high the moon, but the moon never wonders how low you are. Stuff like that. Kind of silly. But it's really, it's really just delicious. And the guy could play guitar. He also did session work with people like Charlie Parker, Coleman Hawkins, Dizzy Gillespie, and is frequently cited as a creator of early bop. So if you don't know Slim Gaylord, check him out. I'm going to recommend the album Slim Gaylord Rides Again as my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>